<laughs> well, have you tried just having a cat catcher on your desk? Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 103 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. Does that bother you, Josh, or say should I say 103? I do, as long as it's a, a, a cardinal instead of an ordinal, I'm fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> week, man, we can't even get started. All right. This week on our panel, we have Josh Susser. Hey, good morning, everyone, from uh, your your uh, unreasonably... Oh, God, I can't even... Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> we also have James Edward Gray. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. David Brady. We control the vertical and the horizontal, which makes no freaking sense on a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about Ruby Gems. Yeah, it's going to be that, it's going to be that kind of episode. So, yeah. Josh, can we get a definition? Oh yeah, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know what a Ruby Gem is, I'm sorry, we can't help you. <laughs> what was that? What was the old competitor? The RPA was it RPA? Oh man! Oh, the was it RPA? The Ruby Project Ar- Archive or something? Well, so I think the Ruby after Gems was up, and but that was back when you actually had to ask Dave for permission to create a gem. You actually okay? Had to- okay, let's not let let's not get lost in the weeds here. <laughs> yeah, RAA is uh, RAA no, is RAA. Not, fine. Not the RAA, not that. <laughs> okay, so Ruby Gems are the best software packaging system in the universe. Um, that's our that's yay. our definition. <laughs> <laughs> Open keyboard. Well, they're what we got. That's what you mean. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. They're also the worst. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Which, overall, I like them. I, I they think. are way better than what came before. Mm-hmm. What yeah. came before? Yeah. Okay, so so the point of this conversation, point of this episode, is bunches of people build Ruby gems to distribute their software to other Ruby developers, uh, and um. Many of those people know what they're doing, but a few don't. And, and many people would like to know what they're doing. So uh, that's what uh, that's what this is about. And a few. So just don't. to be clear, we're talking more about like the nuts and bolts of constructing a gem today, rather than like how you structure your code in that that you distribute it by gem. I, I think I think everything's fair game. <laughs> All righty. <laughs> if we're talking about nuts and bolts, I swear I've used some gems where by the time I'm done putting them together, I have extra screws. <laughs> I, I just use gray tape. Oh, there we go. All right. So, question number one: Should you build a gem? Yes. Yes. Maybe oh, raffle, well, raffle copter gem. Well, what are they good for? What are they? Absolutely good? nothing. Huh? I was waiting for that. <laughs> Jeez. This isn't Java. We're not building war files. <laughs> oh. <man>. Oh. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> oh, it's going to be that kind of episode. Yeah, oh, it totally episode. is. War files. What are they yeah. good for? Seven second startup. <laughs> uh, okay, so the I've seen I've seen Ruby gems used to distribute some interesting uh, kinds of software. So the 
like everybody's seen Ruby gems used to distribute just like a library. You have a one class, you put it in a Ruby gem, you send it out, and then people can use it. But I've also seen people distribute whole Rails applications as Ruby gems. Wow. Yeah, or engine or engines. I, I was going to say engines like Spree engines totally or Refinery. Mm-hmm. Or and, command line applications that, you know, maybe the user doesn't care anything about Ruby, but it's a convenient way to ship them. I, yeah, there I, was a there was something with an old version of Mac OS ten where you had to do this like one or two weird steps in order to get something working. I don't even remember what it was now. And somebody just bundled up a gem and you just installed the gem and ran this one command and it fixed the thing for you. It was interesting. Yeah. One, one weird trick to make your Mac work. Get, get, get programs <laughs> working on your Mac using one weird old trick. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, uh, the other thing is the uh, Ruby gem to basically install a, a native package. Yeah, I was going to say there there's a Ruby gem out there to install libv8, which is a JavaScript hmm. runtime. Yeah. Interesting. Or um or like uh uh, uh database drivers. Mm-hmm. So is Ruby gems encroaching on Homebrew? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I've actually seen stuff shifting from Ruby gems to Homebrew recently. It's like that like Vagrant. Yeah. yeah, Vagrant is a good example. Yeah, I I think that they both are good for different uh particular things. You know, there is some overlap, but yeah, that's a good point. What is a Ruby gem ideal for? Ruby. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> that covers it, folks. Thanks. <laughs> well, if you're on Linux, it's a vast improvement over Homebrew. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I need a beer. <laughs> uh, okay, so so distributing Ruby software. That, I mean, that that part's pretty easy. The, and then we got the native extensions. We have uh, applications, engines. I've only seen applications done as um, as a Ruby gem very infrequently. I think somebody had uh, like the typo blog could be installed as a Ruby gem way once upon a time, but hmm. that may have that may have just been an experiment. I, I, I seem to I seem to remember uh, Toby Lutke doing that. Anyway, taking a different angle on the question. Mm-hmm. David had a great example in the pre-show of things that should not be made into a gem. Do you want to tell us about that, David? Yeah, if it's in the standard library, think real hard before making a Ruby gem for it. Um, so I can't take credit for this. I have to give a shout out to Daniel Huckstep. He's uh, one of our listeners. His Twitter handle is Dark Helmet Live. Um, he spoke at Mountain West Ruby Conf uh, a couple weeks ago, and his whole talk was about the Ruby standard library. And he pointed out that there are like 15 gems for parsing command line options. Uh, I use one. It's called Trollop. I love Trollop. It's just so much better than trying to parse the argument list by hand. Well, it turns out that Ruby has getOptLong in the standard library. It also has options parser, which is a an object-oriented event-based. So you've got basically like the Unix style options processing, very robust, everything you need. Well, 80% of everything you need. And then options parser, which is this event base. It'll generate your usage page for you, just like Trollop did. That was the, the killer feature for me. And it, it just, I, I just suddenly realized there's so many things that we do with gems that you don't need to write a gem for it. Just, just crack open the back half of the pickaxe books and start pickaxe book and start reading. Yeah, I use OptParse like 90% of the time. It's rare that I, I want a feature that's in some option parsing gem that, that isn't in OptParse. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. That's now, when you say opt parse, are you saying that different from the actual option parser in the? <laughs> oh no, no, it, the the library. It's, it's what you require. File, yeah, the file oh, okay. that you require is opt parse. Okay. okay, but that gives you the option parser class, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Which, by the way, kind of brings us to a point: naming things, because that naming is terrible, right? <laughs> okay, so here's a question about naming. Mm-hmm. Don't First use all, underscores. Ah! <laughs> well, that's okay. That's Hulk the smash. All, do you okay? Let's say let's say there are, there's more than than uh, one word in your gem. Like uh, top of my head, I'm working on a gem called Gem Love, um, which I know is a little recursive. But anyway, <laughs> the, you know the name of it is is Gem Love, and that's two words. First of all, do should I use a dash or an underscore in the file name that is required? But then. Do I use the same convention when for listing it, you know, for for generating the for the name of the Ruby gem that you'll see when you yeah. when you do, uh, you know, put it in your in your uh, gem spec or your um, you know your bundler file or when you just gem install it? Do I use the same convention there? I've seen a lot of gems where it was you know like gem dash love when you do a gem install, but then mm-hmm. you require gem underscore love, and it almost seems like that's that's kind of a best practice, except that seems horrible. So it's I'm, horrible. I'm actually so, kind of confused now. It's so, totally so Chuck, horrible. Chuck, 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 what is your problem with underscores? Okay, so okay, the the real problem that I have really comes down to the consistency thing, and that uh, and his shift keys broken. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I freaking hate underscores. Uh, so uh, the thing is, is uh, I think most gems, if they separate them by a dash or an underscore, use a dash, and so I just wish they all would just for consistency. Uh, um, yeah, so so what, my, what my, I've... My major issue is is what Avdi pointed out, where the gem name is dash and the the require is underscore or vice versa, because then I, I remember that they're different, but I can never remember which way it is, and yeah. that, that makes me crazy. I mean, if if it's the same one way or the other, then I can I can just, you know, in my head remember, okay, factory girl is factory underscore girl, and factory girl rails is factory underscore girl underscore rails and i know that the library is the same so mm-hmm. when i require it i'm just requiring the same name and 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 then i'm sort of okay with it even though it has underscores in it so i'm gonna get all eric Hodel on you guys um he, he has a blog post um called how to name gems and uh it's his and, and this word is bolded strong recommendation on how to name gems um, but actually, I think it, it's got uh, some great points in it. I'll link to it in the show notes. But basically, his points are use underscores most of the time to basically match what the require statement would be, mm-hmm. which I I think is totally reasonable. It, it always makes me mad when I install some gem and change have to change what's required. It's also a pain in the butt for things like Bundler because then you have to do gem, gem name, comma, require, colon, whatever you're supposed to require, right? So the his use underscore idea is good. And then we see some gems that use dashes. Eric recommends using those for things that are extensions. So like you have auto test, but then you have auto test growl, which just adds growl support to auto test, right? You're all those things that extend rack. Right, right, extend rack. Mm-hmm. So then uh, he recommends dashes there. And then he, um, his other point is um, uh, 
don't use uppercase letters, stay lowercase, because um, there are some case insensitive file systems uh, out there, and so that can matter. So mm-hmm. um, that's great. That's that's good. But I have one little objection. What right if on. you're you're doing an extension, but the so so let's say it's you know net HTTP foo bar. The extension name has two words in it. By these rules, it would be net dash HTTP dash foo underscore bar, which would make me crazy. <laughs> yeah. Then then we'll just have to live with you being crazy. Hang on one, one second. I'm, make, I'm making a new gem. I'll be done. <laughs> so there's actually two more things about the naming here that are actually re- one one is is slightly humorous, which is that. Because of this, I actually try to stay away from names that have more than one word. Yeah, I, I literally design around this, this FUD, you know, puddle, I guess, of hyphens or underscores just by only using one word. And so, Avdi, I would recommend that you, you, you rename your gem to glove. Um, <laughs> however, however, there is a cultural thing in the Ruby community that you must give your name a just a weird ass freaky name that is surprising but inevitable right it, it, it's like <laughs> it, it, it's like once you know before you hear the gem name you should have no idea how to intuit the name of the gem no way to predict it but once you hear it it should make sense it's the opposite of intuitive so your gem name <laughs> sir isotoner <laughs> so, so, so this is like the opposite of that Simpsons episode where they do the B sharps group and, and they, and, and principal Skinner says they need a name for the group that sounds funny at first, but less funny the more you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. It is, it is a fair point, right? In a lot of languages, you have your extensions or whatever your libraries being called something like, XML colon colon parser, right? Or, mm-hmm. or whatever, where it's very self-descriptive, right? In Ruby, we don't like that, right? We like the creative, uh, you know, nokogiri means chainsaw in Japanese name, right? I mean, uh, uh, yeah. So, 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 J- so James, I, I have a great example of this. So I, I did this, uh, gem that I named refraction, which was a thing. For, you know, plug in for a piece of rack middleware for doing a replacement for mod rewrite. And, and I thought, okay, great. You know, it's, it's part of rack and it's rewriting things. And it's also sort of like changing the direction that something's going, which is kind of like what refraction is. So I like had, had pieces of all of those words in there. I said, and like rack is part of the word refraction. And, uh, and, and I thought, oh, this is a great name for it. And then John Trippiano comes out with rack rewrite. And everyone assumed that that was the official thing that should be used because it had the word rack in the name. <laughs> so it's an it's, interesting yeah. point. Like, I mean, I, I am a little bit sad that our names are not so obvious at times. But at the same time, I kind of like our naming flair. Like, you know, that it's fun and, and we do have these corny names and, and we use them. And sometimes it's just downright pragmatic. Like, for example, the Postgres adapter library is not called Postgres the SQL, thank God. Yeah. It's called uh, uh, PG, right? Yeah. Even the class is PG. Yeah. 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 But, but, but then you get um, crazy stuff like um, Active Record. The Active Record library has the underscore, the Active Record gem 
doesn't have any separation between the words. There's no underscore, nothing. Correct. So that uh, I, 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 that's one of my, the more annoying things. I think. Um, okay, so I, I think that's enough about naming. Oh, oh, what, one last thing, um, Avdi. If you scroll down through Eric Hodel's blog post, the second comment addresses your issue about underscores and dashes in the same. Yes, but he's not uh, going to like that answer. Don't. Yeah, yeah, it's, angry. It, it's gonna make you crazy. <laughs> oh, 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 that's horrible. Okay, the only <laughs> thing more horrible than than writing writing an identifier that has both underscores and dashes in it is when people do camel case with underscores. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, jeez. I'm going to build a gem with camel case hyphens, underscores, and a freaking tilde. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, we, we now have the be-all and end-all of naming. Moving right along. Yes. <laughs> okay, so... <clears throat> so, um, so Okay, so now that we know we want to build a gem and we have a good name for it that won't make Avdi crazy, what's the next step? Well, how about Avdi brought up uh, there's certain ways we organize our files that are standard. Uh, yeah, I think that's a that's a great thing to talk about. Do do we want to start talking about tools? Because is there a tool for like generating a template for a gem project? There's multiple tools. Oh, you. You talked about, so you did a vote IO on this. Okay. So, so that was something completely different. The, oh, well, somewhat different. <laughs> the, the, it was all about gems. So I, I did a little online poll about what tools, what tools people use to maintain their gem spec file, because there's mm. a lot of stuff around that. And we can talk about that in a few minutes, okay. but I didn't, I didn't do anything about like templating the, the layout of your directory and all that the whole gem thing. So, well, so I, I'm calling forward to that because I use bundler to generate the gem spec, but I use bundler to generate the whole gem tree. Yes, bundler will generate the project layout, right? Mm -hmm. My, my aha moment was the realization that your, your poll limited it to gem spec. So I didn't even think of bones. Uh, I don't think anybody's using bones anymore, but bones used to be just fantastic for this. Mm -hmm. And there's ho and jeweler. Mm -hmm. Ho being H O E, by the way. Like, yeah. Like a rake, but a ho. Okay. So, and so, so yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to like a flashback to Jeopardy. The, um, but the, uh, it, you know, the, the joke about rakes and hoes on Jeopardy. I'll let you Google that one. Okay. The, uh, <laughs> uh, they had to reprogram Watson and remove all the urban dictionary references from him. <laughs> that too. Okay. Um, so the, um, what is the, a good layout for a gem? There's certain standards that if you follow, the Ruby gem system knows what you're intending, right? So the lib directory being where most of our code lives. If you have a bin directory, then those are expected to be executables. You know, there's other directories, test or spec, doc for documentation. Um, although that directory is always kind of weird to me because I believe you don't put stuff in there that can be generated, only stuff that, you know, you need. And then there's also, there's other directories like a data directory if you need, um, if you need uh, some kind of data along with your gem. Yeah, those off the top of my head. Okay, so I have a, um, I have a resource here that, um, there's actually guides.rubygems.org and there's a what is a gem page and that includes um, their recommendation for structure for a gem. So here's the link to that in the show notes. Cool. Uh, 
And, and yeah, so you see the bin directory and the lib and the test directory, and then you get some human readable files and the gem spec. So like the readme and the rake file and the gem spec. And I think the most interesting thing about the directory structure is when you're in the lib directory, there's some pretty useful conventions for how you name things and how you structure the Ruby files and the subdirectories so that everything just works with uh, how things get required and how the files get found. J James, how, yes. how do we, how, I'm just wondering how we want to talk about that because there's there's like three things that all interact there, like how you require things, how you manage the load path, and how the directory stuff interacts with it. So, I mean, people can look at this link you just gave, but it, uh, basically the, the one paragraph summary here is, RubyGems modifies your Ruby load path, which controls how your Ruby code is found by the require statement. When you require a gem, you're just placing the gem's lib directory in your load path, blah, blah, blah. And it goes on to give actual examples here of, of what ends up in the load path, stuff like that. I've yeah. got to say that I've kind of gotten away from knowing these details, um, as of Ruby 1.9, I prefer to just use require relative. Mm. Um, yeah. And then I don't even need to know this, right? I don't need to know mm. what's in my load path and stuff like that. I know that I can get to that first file that I have to require, and from there I can require relative to get everything else. Now, now you do the require relatives inside your gem, right? Yes. Not from outside. Okay. Okay. Because yes. if you were if you were about to tell me that I have to load your gem and then I have to know the tree structure inside, no, no, no. I just, just start driving right now. I give a I give a top level, you know, the top level file you need to require, and then that file require relatives anything that it needs. Now the only thing I've run into is require relative is a little bit persnickety. In some cases, like an IRB, it doesn't work, which I think is so stupid. I don't get why it wouldn't use the uh, working directory, uh, but it doesn't because there's no file. It's required relative to this file. So uh, the other thing that's strange, I was using something recently. It might have been Unicorn or something like that. And however, it was loading my config.ru file. It's like it was reading it and evaling it or something like that. So there was no file context. So I couldn't use require relative. <laughs> it was very strange. But, hmm. uh, in or, most cases, in gems especially, require relative gets you around having to know the right. the load path. Uh, okay. So so first um, first anti tip here. <laughs> It's like, yeah, yeah th things to avoid doing in your Ruby gem is do not manipulate the load path. <laughs> do, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. So, so, so the thing to do is not to find mm -hmm. all of the directories in your gem that you want to require code from, add them to the load path, and then just require them with the, yeah. with, the with the leaf name of the of the file. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, so, if, yeah, you're, they're, if they're your Ruby gem has a dollar sign colon dot unshift in it, that's a stabbing. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. that the problem with something like that is if you were to add a bunch of directories, then you may just have simple files in that directory named, you know, request.rb. Then Rails tries to load and load its, you know, you know, directory slash directory slash directory request rb. But if yours is higher because of the gem manipulating the load path, then you just broke Rails' ability to load. Right. So. Mm hmm. Right. The, the, the straightforward way to do things is to have 
you have a top level file in your lib directory. So like, let's say you're doing the, the glove gem. And so in your, in the lib directory, you have a glove.rb file. And then you also have a glove directory. Mm-hmm. And the glove.rb file will require any of the top level files that it needs to within the glove directory. And then each one of those files that you know, any place you have a subdirectory in there, you can have something that goes and requires the files in there for you. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a manual way of having all of the files explicitly require the things that they need beneath them. Yeah. In the, in the tree structure of the directory. And that, you know, I, you know, Yehuda showed me, uh, how to do this for building, uh, engines to plug into Rails. And it's just like, okay, this makes so much sense mm-hmm. <laughs> because then you don't have to worry about require versus require relative versus am I putting something on my load path? And then, and at that point, you don't even care too much about the load path because it's all just, you know, you know, you, you could, the one thing you can be sure of with a gem is that the lib directory is on the load path. Yeah. There is so. one thing that's kind of, Annoying. Some gems do this, and it, it bugs me a little in the kind of post-bundler world where you have the gem, and it has multiple different ways you can require it, and that changes what it does or how it works. I, I'm kind of over that, and I admit that I've done it myself in the past, but it's kind of annoying in bundler because, you know, you specify the gem, and then bundler assumes the requires the same, right? So... If you want to work with that, then you have to give the require flag. But there may even be like now there can even be like multiple ways you require that jam, right? Require this in your rake file, require this in your normal thing. And the problem with that is then you, so you've got to like in bundler, you've got to give the multiple ways you can require it. And it just, it, it seems clever, like you're giving people choices, but it actually turns out to be more hassle, I think. So yeah. I say skip I'm the actually, I'm actually okay with it. Let me give a let me give an example, and maybe you can tell me a, a different way of handling this. I do think that just requiring the gem name should require should you know bring that gem, load that gem, bring it into your load path. But I don't think that doing that should alter anything globally. Uh, but sometimes it's really convenient to have some extras that do make global alterations. Mm-hmm. So I mean, classic example: most test frameworks have you know you can require test unit uh, or you can or you can require mini test which will just bring in the mini test library that, mm-hmm. that you can then use but you can also require mini test slash auto run mm-hmm. and that and you know and that's the that's the thing that hooks in an add exit handler so that when you know so that you can just evaluate that file and it'll immediately run without you having to put some extra code in to to go and find the the tests and make them run uh, but obviously you know I think that's something that you, you don't want to just get when you just def- require the library by default uh, but it's handy to have the ability to just have a one-liner that does that auto running and you see other stuff like that like you know if, if i've got a, a glove library and then there's like a gloves glove rspec library for when people want to test it do tests in rspec and maybe it adds some setup and teardown steps to yeah. the global list of of rspec setup and teardown that's really handy but again it's a global change that i don't want if i just require glove yeah so- so I, I just want to jump in here, and we're kind of going to head this way in a minute anyway, I think, but why wouldn't you just put that into a separate gem and then just require that gem? Because it's too small for a separate gem. I mean, yeah, these, are, it, these are often yeah, things that are sense. like three liners. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the, the key thing here, right, the, the general rule is don't let your 
you don't write a library that leaks monkey patches out into the application that included it, right? That's just, it's just, it, it's dependency infection at that point, right? And so, yeah, you give somebody the glove library and now they can manipulate gloves and they can interact with everything. But if you do, you know, glove dot, I don't know, patches or glove dot, you know, uber alice or whatever, I don't know. Now every object in the system has a dot fingers method and that, you know, that can access gloves. And, and that's a good way to do it because now you can choose because, because sometimes we do run, like, like active support. The whole point of active support is to infect the global environment with hundreds of mon- monkey patches. But if your gem can run without monkey patches or can run with them, absolutely separate them and have them be two separate requires. So I, I, I think I agree. I mean, it's a complicated problem. Like one of the things I really miss from Perl, as weird as this is going to sound, is the import statement can take parameters. Yeah. Uh, yes. And Those man, things. I wish our requires could do that so that we can solve problems like this. Require mini test, auto run true, you know, and then, or whatever. If we could, if we had some way of passing parameters down to those libraries, then we could solve issues like this. Agreed. Yeah, I I do agree generally with the global, you know, requiring something sh- shouldn't modify the global unless I know what I'm doing. Highline works that way. If you just require Highline, you get the library. If you do Highline import, then it gives you the global methods to make it easy to use from the top level. But at the same time, I mean, uh, so if you have like the set of rate tasks and then you have the other one, at the normal library and and you're using both so that's in bundler it's gem gem name comma require then you have to give an array of both of the things that you're going to require and then you'll have to do the requires manually you know in the right place i mean man that's a pain oh, in the so, but so here's I how, I, how i look at that because i would never put that in the in the the gem file interesting yeah. i like, also would i would also require it separately and when I require the monkey patch it, version of glove, it would go get the glove library as well. So there would still only be one. Like, like you don't require mini test, then mini test auto run. You just require mini test auto run. Well, so, and, and I would, I mean, I would put the, I would put the gem in my gem file just ordinarily with no special options. Yeah. But I would want, you know, let's say it's mini test auto run. You know, I want that explicitly in the file that uses it because. I, you know, I want to be able to see it. I want it to be greppable. That's a thing that changes the way the system works and in a global way. And, and that's something that I want to see in the code. Yeah. James has a good point, though, that by using the require in your gem file, now it's just there. Uh, no, actually, the what Bundler does, I think, if I remember correctly, the require line just connects the gem name to what you will actually be requiring. It doesn't actually oh. do the require. Oh, okay. um, it, then in Bundler, it, and this is weird, right? Because most people know Bundler from Rails, where Rails does make Bundler auto-require everything. Um, right, Bundler.require. Okay. But Bundler does not have that behavior by default. It, it just sets up the gems the way you want them, okay. and then you're expected to require them. And it's I'm that. Okay with that. The- Technically speaking, it doesn't do anything by default. I mean, Bundler, you know, you have to require, you have to have Bundler in your code somehow. And so you, you require Bundler and then you say either Bundler dot require, 
which is going to go through all the gems in the in the gem file right. and put them in your load path and require them all, so it's going to load them all all up. Or you say bundler dot setup, which right. is going to go through all those gems and it's going to put them in the load path, but it's not going to load them. That's right. Yeah, and that's really. I mean, that's if you're building something from scratch, you're making that choice. I mean, unless you're using some sort of framework that that gives you like an environment fl- file or something, you know, a top level file that already has that in. Um, and that's a choice you make whether to call bundler.setup or bundler.require. So if you have that thing where you have a gem and then it adds some rate tasks, you need to list both requires because bundler needs to be able to match that path into the gem that it has on disk. So it needs to be able to recognize it. Then you'll have to use bundler setup as opposed to bundler require so that in the main gem, you can require the normal thing. And then in the rake file, you can require the rake task one. I'm just, I'm not sure that's true, but, but I need to take it offline and test it. Cause I, 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 need, I need to listen to that. I, I think again. as long as it's in the, as, as long as it's in the gems in the load path, you should be able to require optional parts of the gem. Interesting. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I, I want to get into a question that I have that's sort of related to this. And that is when do you write an extension to your gem versus, you know, giving it other require options? Like what are the trade-offs? So like I would say when you're going to have something that's optional. So a good, a good example that just pops into my head is auto test growl. So you've got auto test, which is going to automatically run your test, but maybe you would like to, you're on a Mac and you would like to have those notifications come through growl. Right. Then that seems like an optional add-on part, right? Yeah. And, but maybe you're on Windows or Linux and you don't want to drag in that code every time you install, you know. The well, here's the rule stuff. for me. Yeah, I mean, the rule for me is, 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 is based on gem dependencies. I mean, if Autotest Growl also has dependencies on a Growl gem, which is Mac OS only, you know, then if you bundled that Growl functionality into the main Autotest gem, then you'd have two choices, either... You make that growl gem a dependency even when somebody's downloading it on Linux, uh, which could cause problems, or you leave the dependency off completely and you just have to like write in the documentation, oh, if you want to use this, this other feature, you're going to have to manually, you know, require, you're going to have to install, um, the growl gem. So I think it's all about those, those kind of, you know, dependencies. If, if your, if your add-on has a dependency, which you might not want to force to be installed on everyone, then make it an add-on. Right. Make it a gem. So, so we've talked a lot about dependencies. It, it may be worth mentioning that, um, RubyGems actually has a kind of notion of two different kinds of dependencies. And this came in kind of late in the RubyGems life cycle. So I don't think everybody knows about it. I still see people using it incorrectly, but in the gem spec, you can have add dependency, which is your normal gem dependency um, that we all should be familiar with. But you also have add development dependency, which is something like, hey, we're using our spec for testing or Mm -hmm. uh, rake for these tasks or whatever. And that will, you can, when you install the gem, you can ask for the uh, development dependencies if you want, but that's not the default behavior. So by default, you don't drag in massive OLR spec and all of its dependencies, uh, mm-hmm. but you can choose to get them when you want them. How do you turn that on? Do you know off the top of your head? 
I think it's a switch uh, on the gem command line. I'll look it up okay. real quick. Okay. Because I just realized I do that, but then I go to the gem file and I also have a group development do, and I put RSpec in there, and I just realized that that's how it's getting into my development project, not through the gem spec itself. Yeah, that's typically what I do too. I'll, I'll put it in a gem. I file. mean, if you're, I mean, if you're developing on the gem, you've got the source code, so you know you should be using the gem file. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Uh, how 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 should people be managing dependencies in their in their gems? The it's uh, oh, is this a good time for us to start talking about the gem spec? Like you know, we we've talked sure. about the the directory structure of gems. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's also this. Okay, for people new to this, there's a file within the gem itself uh, that ends in a .gem spec extension, mm -hmm. and that is um, some Ruby code. It's Ruby code in that uh, in that file that describes what's going on in that gem, and it talks about what are the files in it, uh, who the author is, what is its open source license, what are its dependencies on other gems, version information, uh, like crazy stuff. So, <laughs> let's see. Do we have a you know actually this this guides.rubygems.org site uh, has a ton of really good information on most of the stuff we're talking about. And they have a, a nice little thing about the specification um, in here as well. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll pop that link in. But I think we should just link to the top-level site as well. Uh, so, so, David, just to answer your question, I did look it up. Gem install, and then you can do dash dash development if you want the development dependencies along with normal dependencies. Or you can mm -hmm. do dash dash development all if you want your gem's development dependencies and the development dependencies of anything that's a dependency for your gem. Cool. So basically, development dependencies all the way down the tree. Wow. Cool. So James, how does that interact with using Bundler to develop gems? Or do we want to hold off on that? So that's actually a really great question because I've actually had quite a bit of experience with that recently. Bundler has a feature called gem spec in it. Mm -hmm. um, and if you use that, Bundler will use the dependencies that are specified in your gem spec as your requirements. So mm -hmm. you can just make your gem spec normally, set up your dependencies, and then in the bundle file, you can say gem spec there. And then, you know, even if you wanted some specific stuff just for testing, you could go ahead and add like the test group there and put some things in or whatever, but the main, the main stuff would be handled through the gem spec, right? Yeah. So I think that's a good thing. So the gem spec option only pulls in the, um, the actual dependencies, not the development dependencies. That is a good question. No. I actually hope that it would take the development dependencies and put them in the development group, but that's what, that's what it does. Yeah. Okay. Good. Cause that's awesome. That's cool. Okay, so if you do that, if so when you're developing a gem, you can just use the gem spec and have the development dependencies in there, or you can add a bundler gem file at the top level of your project, say gem spec in it, and then you can use bundler to help you while you are developing the gem. And that will take care of all of the installing your development dependencies that you need. So I guess maybe we I didn't make this clear. The reason you would use Bundler to manage this is, is for all the great reasons we've come to love Bundler, right? You can quit worrying about those dependencies and stuff, but just 
be aware, you know, when your gem loads, you're not going to have bundler, which is the reason to use the gem spec and then in the gem file, use the gem spec command to load it from there mm -hmm. because your gem spec will be in play, right? So mm -hmm. if you do it from the gem spec and then bring that over to bundler, then bundler is managing it when you're developing and testing and your gem specs managing it once it's finally installed. So. So I have an odd question about gem specs to throw out to the rest of the rogues here. And it's useful, I think, maybe to some of the listeners. But there's a section in the gem spec where you can say uh, files equals. And then you give it a list of all the files to uh, install. And I am torn between wanting that to be explicit and listed right there in the gem spec so that you can just read it and see right where it is and wanting it to be um, functionally provably accurate. In other words, have this little line that basically just says, you know, glob all of my subdirectories and include all the files. And that's a line of mm -hmm. code that, that shows that it's going to have everything. But if you're reading the gem spec, it doesn't tell you what they are. You have to go back to the thing. <laughs> right. and, and, so, and there's a third option. What is the third option? The, the third option is you use Git to list all of the files that have been committed to the repo. Ooh. Correct. And, and, and that's, and, and that's what bundler does when it generates your gem spec. Mm -hmm. So this is actually a popular debate, um, mainly because different tools like Ho, for example, requires a manifest file, which lists mm -hmm. line by line, every single item that's right. included. And so that's one line of thinking. And then, uh, as Josh said, there's the other line of thinking, uh, of dynamically pulling it uh, via something like Git. And the advantage from pulling it from Git over something like a file glob is that the file glob might pick up some invisible files like Emacs backup files or Mac OS 10 directory structure files or things like that. Uh, whereas the Git will, uh, you know, honor the Git ignores and stuff like that, which will probably be those things. Um, so right. you'll just yeah. get the files yeah. that matter. I'll, yeah. I'll, although the Git thing, if you're developing a gem and you're trying to test, okay, so if you're, if you're developing multiple gems at the same time and you're trying to test stuff and you haven't done a Git commit, that can really screw with your test. Oh, run. yeah. Yeah, yeah so that's I, a good point. I, I have run into that. So you have to make sure that you are like developing on some sort of, of branch where you can be just like, you know, updating the head commit over and yeah. over as you're doing your tests. So one, one other question I have on this, though, is uh, if you're using Git to pull everything in, aren't you committing your tests and everything else to the gem? And if somebody's installing the gem, do they necessarily want all of that stuff? Yes, please include it. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, traditionally, we've always done that. We've always included everything. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and in fact, RubyGems has a way to run the unit tests for the gem. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. you, can you can install a gem on your system and test it to make sure that it works on your system. Oh, oh really? yes, yes. This was something yes, that yes, CPAN, yes. The, uh, the Perl archive, actually had uh, you know, rolled in, and it would do by default. Uh, mm -hmm. it, when, you, when you install a Perl package, it as part of the install, it runs the unit tests to find out whether it's working on your system or not. Oh man, I right. I want to I want to monkey patch Ruby gems now so that when you do a gem install, it'll run the test suite if it can find one. <laughs> um, yeah, so I just I don't want to I don't want to monkey patch it. I just want to 
like submit full <laughs> request for that. Yeah, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, that's that's a legitimized monkey patch, isn't it? But anyway, uh, so I just pasted in the back channel. Uh, for those listening, I've got a, a gem called Tour Bus. Um, it's GitHub.com D Brady Tour Bus. And, uh, might be tour underscore bus, uh, or it might be a hyphen or a tilde. I'm not sure. But, uh, uh, in my gem spec, I have a, a, a commented out Ruby program that you just run at the bash prompt and it emits all of the files. And then I copy and I paste them and I run that every time I change. And this is, t- this is so tedious, but it does at least let me say, here is the thing that proves that everything is included. Oh, and then here's the explicit list of files so that you can read them and see that they're there. I, I don't know that that's a, good solution it there's definitely some engineering habit that you know like like things that i do automatically in my head to make this work which main means it might ought to be offloaded to a computer instead if um, i were going to do that i would make a rake task that modifies the gems but yeah like a like a rake task to like repackage or rebuild the file list or something you, yeah you, you mean like jeweler Kind of like Jeweler, yeah. I've never, Jeweler, Josh. I've never played with Jeweler. Tell me about Jeweler. So, okay, so so we've been talking about using Bundler to generate the the skeleton for your uh, gems directory structure, and also for generating your template gem spec file. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Bundler is really popular for that. I put up a little uh, survey thing on what is it? Votes.io. It's a cool uh, Rails Rumble project, and. Asked people what they used for doing this, and before the the survey results got polluted by some robot clicking a button six hundred times, it looked like Bundler was way ahead for all of this stuff. The best but part is to know that that got hacked by somebody typing "bundle exec hack job." <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> nice. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, but but okay, but the other things uh, that we were looking at on the poll were things things. So there was Ho and Jeweler and New Gem and. What Ruby Gems tasks? Uh, that so there's a you know a bunch of tools out there that people use for either building or maintaining the gem spec. And one of the ways to do that that I believe um, you know so Jeweler does this. I'm not sure about any of the others. Jeweler has a rake file that basically has all of the logic that you would put in into your um, or your gem spec in how David was just describing it. He has a little piece of code in there that does that. And then James said, oh, I'll put that in a rake task. Jeweler does that for you. But you have to put a ton of stuff into that rake file Mm -hmm. that is basically the same information you would put in your gem spec file, just massaged around to be able to run in a rake file. (laughs) So I'm going to give my opinion here, and this is totally my opinion, and everybody's going to disagree with me. You guys can all send me hate mail, but... I'm against the manifest file of Ho because it's just too error prone. Like I always add a new file, then forget to put it in the overall list. Right? I'm right. I'm right with you there. Yeah. So, no. It, yeah. That's that's a dry violation. Right. It's just I I always do that. Jeweler kind of the same way. It's the duplication of information. I'm putting the whole thing in the rake task so that it can go through this process and generate this gem spec for me, which is yeah. going to have the same information that I could have just put in the gem spec. 
And that first link Josh gave to the what's a gem thing on the Ruby Gems guide, there's a sample gem spec in there. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven lines counting the end at the end. You know, I mean, it's a gem spec is just not that complicated. You know, now, now that gem spec will generate like fifteen warnings, though, right? Like missing <laughs> license file and missing. <laughs> uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't. Be a good I, thing to try. Maybe. So at, at its essence, a gem a gem spec is pretty simple, but yeah. they can get kind of complicated. That's yeah. true. There are situations where they do get pretty involved. The file list thing we've been discussing is one of them. I, I like the the Git trick that Bundler does. Um, that uh, it, at some point you need to reality check the file list. I do it whenever I um, I usually just use a. Rake's uh, package tasks that it has built in. And when I type rake package, it shows me which files are getting shoved into the gem. So I just kind of go down that for a reality check, like, wait, why did it include that two gig file, you know? But uh, I, I mean, I'm sure I can miss things. That's true. Um, Bundler does another cool thing along these lines where if you have it generate the gem, it will purposefully make a file called version RB under the gem namespace. And the reason to do that is so that in your gem spec, you can require just that file without loading a ton of Ruby code to get the version constant for your gem spec. So you don't have to always update the version in two places. Thank you. You just made me stop hating that file. <laughs> and, well, and that file's like, got an advantage, right? In that if we all did that, then we could do that, right? We mm -hmm. could load that file and know the version without yeah. loading everything, right? Yeah. My my biggest beef with dry is when you dry something up, but then you hide the thing you dry and you put it in some weird corner shelf that's hard to find. And yeah, I'm used to looking for the version of a gem by opening the gem spec. And there's just this include, you know, the, okay. And, but yeah, it's becoming standard now, right? You go look in the lib version. Yeah. So I, I'm basically, I guess Bundler has totally won me over with its way of doing things is what I'm trying to say. Whereas mm -hmm. it seems to try to put the knowledge where it makes the most sense to put the knowledge without having to, you know, keep track of it in several places and stuff. Like that. I, yeah. I think that's true. So, so let's explain how the gem spec gets used in the life cycle of gem development, because I think that's, that's a good, uh, good thing for people to walk away with. So that, so there's, there's, you write the gem spec and we've talked about that somewhat now. Uh, and that, but then there's when you create the gem. So there's a, there's a build, a build phase mm -hmm. where you have your source tree of all of your files, including the dot gem spec and you build that. And that, produces a gem file, which is sounds just like a gem file, but, but is different. So Bundler has the capital G gem file, but Ruby gems, when you build a gem, you get your, you know, refraction.gem file. So that is what we used to call a gem file, but I don't know what we call it now that we already have, a, we have another gem file. And it's by just the a homophone, yeah. Okay, thank you. So, by the way, I'll take I'll take uh, I'll take twenty seconds here to rant about Bundler calling that file the gem file. <laughs> it's, like, it's like it's like okay, we got you know way back when we had the make file 
on, on ancient systems. And then Jim Wyrick created the rake file, which was the Ruby make file. Uh, so because that had historical precedent and it was naming it off the make file, I can't give Jim a hard time for that. But everybody else who's built a file that ended that ends in file after that, you're a terrible person and you should feel bad. <laughs> and bundler doubly so because it should be called the bundler file. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's like, how do I really need the name of the file to tell me that it's a file? Foreman <laughs> has a proc file. I know, it's like everybody has a, a thing file now. So mm -hmm. I just... I, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start making my, my gems have a, a something folder folder. Or something <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the file directory. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. it'll have, and it'll have something file files in them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. But, uh, but okay. So you have this dot G G E M, this dot gem file, we'll call it, uh, that, uh, has the, it's, a, and it's a binary distributable format for your gem. And which is, I think it's actually a, a zip file. The, the binary format of the file. It's just a zip file that it's has either like, a zip or a tar. I don't remember. But yeah. Um, right. Okay. So it's one of the, one of those archive formats. And within there, you have not only the original .gem spec file, but there's also, what is it? Is it YAML? There's a, it's, it's the converted form of that. That is not, it's no longer executable Ruby code or pieces of Ruby code. It's now this thing that's been translated into YAML that has all of the information in it. Does that sound right, guys? Yes. Okay. And then you take that .gem file and then move it up to rubygems.org or wherever you are hosting your gems. It's entirely possible to run a, a, a local gem server within your company's firewall. That's a, a fairly common thing for people to do. And then later on, you do either bundle install or gem install. It pulls down the the .gem file, unpackages it, and then RubyGems runs a fair amount of code to install that on your um, in your systems file system somewhere. So yeah, I just the only comment I had on that is um, the build step can be really trivial uh, if you've been doing the gem spec like we've discussed. I'll yeah. link to in the show notes that rake file for Highline, but if you look in there, basically all I do is require the gem spec because it's a normal Ruby file, and I always make my gem spec uh, assigned to a constant somewhere so that I can use it uh, elsewhere. And uh, if you look in my uh, rig task, which is what I'll link to, there's a gem package task that comes with rake, I think, and you can just uh, you can just require that, and then you can just gem package task the spec which, uh, because I assigned it to a constant, uh, it, it's available. And um, then it will it will give you several rake tasks, uh, rake package, rake clobber package, and something else or whatever. Anyways, rake package will build the gem for you. So you don't have to do anything special there. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and then you gem push it to get it up to uh, RubyGems. Mm -hmm. RubyGems.org, sorry. Okay. Let's see. So we we've been all over the the map here. We, we're we're kind of talking about tools. It's been a great we... episode. One more one more thing on tools. Quick thing on tools. It's okay if you generate your gem spec or whatever if you do that. But do generate it, put it in the directory, and check that into Git. And it needs to be at the top level and the name of your gem and stuff. The reason is that Bundler works with that, right? 
we can point it at a Git repository and it mm -hmm. will bring down the Git repository and use that version. Or you can point it at a specific commit SHA or a branch or whatever. And that's really great in development when you're like, you know, using some library on the side or whatever and messing with that. And the way that works is Bundler looks for that gem spec to build the gem when it pulls it down, right? Cool. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's very useful to put a gem spec in your GitHub repo, even if you're not like pushing it to RubyGems, RubyGems.org. So just, one one more question for the group then, and this should be a fast one. So in Tourbus, I've got a little script shell script called build.sh, and all it does is uninstall the Tourbus gem build the tourbus.gem spec to regenerate the .gem file, and then it does a gen, gem install on the most recent .gem file in the directory. And I use that when I'm developing on tourbus so that I can go start up this other Sinatra app and run it you know, from the command line with it being installed and all that. Is that a bad practice? Is that a good practice? Does Jeweler or something else do that for me? I always just like do those steps manually. The, yeah, I, okay. I have... I, I haven't gotten to the point where I do that often enough that uh, I want to have it all just be like build and I'm done. So, yeah. I mean, it, it sounds useful. So, uh, okay. So we have a couple other topics we probably want to hit uh, at least a little bit before we wrap up. Maybe uh, versioning. Yeah. Uh, well, we did a whole episode on versioning. So yeah. And, and if you go back to that episode, we talk a lot about stem bar um, which I think is good, but the one thing I would add from a very RubyGems pers uh, specific perspective is, so here's a great example. Ryan Davis is developing like mini test version five right now. And he's, so he's getting ready to push it and, and it's a 5.0. So it's got some incompatible changes and stuff. And he went back and looked, uh, through the gem server and just did a scan of gems and made a list of all the gems that are about to break when he pushes this 5.0. And the reason they're going to break is in their gem file, they specified greater than or equal to version mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So now what's going to happen is 5.0 is greater than or equal to whatever they said. Yep. So it's going to pop, and then they're going to have incompatible changes in there. And the right way to handle that in uh, RubyGems is to use the uh, twiddle waka, some people call it, but it's a tilde uh, greater than symbol. And that means that you will take minor version changes. So like if you said twiddle waka, you know, 4.0. 4 yeah, then you are allowed to get 4.0.1 or 4.0.2 or whatever but it would not give you 5.0 because it assumes that could be incompatible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, James, James, what you, what you said is absolutely correct, but I think it's a little confusing because of the, um, the number of dots in your version numbers that you talked about. The, 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 the pessimistic uh, version operator is, you know, you said greater than 4.0, or, or he said 4.0.0, 4 and 4.0 mm -hmm. is probably better. Well, well, then you the, get 4.1. Okay, so 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 James said Totowaka 4.0, right. which will let you get 4.0.1, etc. But it will also let you get 4.1, but it will not let you get 5.0. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in general you should be doing the um, 
if you can't, if you can get away with it with the gem that you're dealing with, you should be doing major and minor, um, but not patch with your yeah. with your twiddle waka. Uh, okay, so so that's just like that's a great point about versions. Uh, the there's a couple other little things to t- to touch on in here. Oh yeah, open source license. So there is in fact a place in the gem spec where you can say what the license is, and please do that. <laughs> it's just uh, I u- I use the open source license. <laughs> I like yeah. that one. <laughs> I've actually had people email me, and in the past, I was lax about putting it in there. And people email me, and they're like, "I'd love to use your gem at work, but they won't let me because you don't specify the license in the gem spec." And that's how we uh, pull the license and get the info. So it really is valuable to people if you do that. Yeah, well, and if you don't specify the license, then you own the um, intellectual property there, even if it's available for people to download and install. And so, you know, technically, you could give them grief over it. And I think that's why people want to see it, is so that it says out there explicitly, you can use this, and I'm not going to you know, try and claim any rights to this code. What about signing gems? Signing gems? Yeah. Should we just do an episode where we have Tony Arcieri back and we talk about signing gems? I think we should definitely talk about it as so... As people probably know, rubygems.org was hacked recently. And so in order to verify the gems, they basically had to go back through every single gem and verify against the last known good, right? State to ensure that no gem had been modified and now contained malicious junk or whatever. And that process could be greatly improved if we would adopt signing gems, which has been available for a while, but doesn't seem to be popular for some reason. And uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know all the details on that. I was going to say, if, if you can find a way, I will autograph it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I, okay, so I think that I'm going to make a prediction, and I think that, you know, sometime, over the next year, that the, the toolchain support for signing gems is going to improve greatly. And that the you know the Ruby community will shift to having signed gems. I hope so. What what will I, that? Oh, I, I guess we don't want to go down this rabbit hole. Never mind. Yeah, I think that's all. That's uh, potentially what, a whole other episode. What <laughs> yeah. about Josh? Tell us about using the packaging system as a dependency. Oh yeah, that's a really bad thing to do in your Ruby gem. So there are. Um, if you look around, I don't have an example off the top of my head, but if you're doing something within your gems code that is explicitly using the Ruby gem package system, that's a no-no. And and what, what do you mean? So so what I mean is that like you can call Ruby gems version and then do some version comparisons, or you could uh, you could be requiring Ruby gems to go load another gem explicitly. And, and I could see that there would be situations where you'd want to do that. Like you say, okay, I'm a, I, I have some, something in my Ruby gem that is smart enough to figure out which database system is installed on my system and then go load the driver for that database. I mean, that, that sounds crazy, but I've seen crazier. The, and the, so, and then that would, Within that code, you could do something like, okay, I'm going to require Ruby gems and then use Ruby gems to go load the right version of the right gem to talk to the database that I have on my system. If you are explicitly requiring Ruby gems in your code so that you can use the Ruby gems feature set, you're doing it wrong. 
And this is a case where you can actually say you're doing it wrong. Because what that does is that prevents people from using other packaging systems to use your Ruby code. And you're, and just because your Ruby code is distributed within a Ruby gem or packaged within a Ruby gem, uh, you know, the, the Ruby gems package format is not like, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a standard format, at least in a small world of standards that, it, that can be manipulated by other packaging systems. And there are several package systems that, that will work with it. There's Ruby gems itself. There's bundler. There's, um, what's the one that the Seattle folks are partial to? It was, uh, it was, it was, uh, uh, isolate. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and then there's something that Chris Wanstruth did, uh, that was based on the Python one pip. So um, to, to give Josh it. Was, Josh it yeah. Yeah. So, to give. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so if you do that, then you break those systems from being able to manage ge the gems the way they want to. And so just to use Josh's example, if you're loading Ruby gems and doing your own version matching and then and grabbing a specific version of something, then if I put it in my bundler controlled app and I lock at some version of something, then when that code loads, then we're probably just going to have some kind of conflict, right? Yes. Yeah. So don't ever call, you know, if you ever see a require Ruby gems within any of your, the Ruby files in your gem, don't do that. Figure out some other way of doing it. Okay. Uh, how about maintaining? Who here's maintained a gem for a long time? James? <laughs> <laughs> too long. Too long. <laughs> what What are the challenges in maintaining gems as as time changes? Free time. <laughs> okay, so we I should we totally just see that. <laughs> so, um, should we just insert our uh, you know contributing to open source episode by reference? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, some things, uh, the Highline gem really could use a new version. Uh, it's just grown over time and things have been bolting on, bolted on and bolted on. And now I can see all the patterns involved and I need to go back and clean it all up, you know. Um, but I just, I can never find the time to actually go and do that change, right? So, uh, yeah, that's, I think it's free time. And then uh, faster CSV, which later got, you know, moved into the standard library. So it was the time maintaining that. But then I actually wanted the faster CSV gem to die out, right? Because it was in the standard library. So I, I had to <laughs> actively try to kill it, right? Which is, yeah. There's lots of problems with maintenance. Maintenance is hard. <laughs> is there anything about maintaining Ruby gems that's, that's like particular? as opposed to just like generic open source projects. Is there, is there anything about interacting with rubygems.org or tracking changes in bug, bundler or rubygems? That's a good question. Rubygems has been going through a lot of changes, but mostly they haven't affected me too much. There was a, there was a time period when the development dependencies were introduced and you couldn't really use those too much when they were first introduced because everybody would have a much older version of Ruby gems that wouldn't have that feature. So then your gem spec would just crash, you know, uh, which it's been around long enough. Now I think we're pretty much past that problem and Ruby gems ships with Ruby these days. So, you know, that helps too. I don't know. That's a good question. Anybody else think of any other gem specific maintenance problems? Not really. I mean, the only thing that I've seen is, is just the version of Ruby kind of stuff. 
and incompatibilities. But don't ever replace a gem version. Release a new version, right? Oh, because that's that's crucially important. Yeah, the gems have mirrors and stuff like that, so uh, there can be many copies out there. So if you if you bungle it and you release a version or whatever, and it's bad, then your tendency might be, oh, I'll just fix that version, but don't do that. Just release a later version that's fixed. So. Yeah, it, yeah. if you do that, Ryan Davis and Eric Hodel will come to your house and sing. <laughs> no! <laughs> I, I didn't want to, like, threaten violence on their behalf. So, anyway, uh, okay. We don't know. We've never heard them sing. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Okay. Okay, it, it looks like we've hit, hit everything on our list. Hitting, that's not a word. <laughs> um, anything else somebody, to talk about? Somebody just reminded me of the name of a, uh, of a tool for building gem or for, for putting together gem specs called Rake Gem. And this is, this one's interesting simply because if, like, if you've ever wanted to put together a gem and you wanted to have all of the, you wanted to have some useful rake tasks around it. But you wanted them all to be just inline in the rake file, not like, you know, requiring some gem rake file, you know, like the, the bundler tools that you don't know exactly what's available or how they work. Like you just want to have the tasks right there in your rake file so you can just edit them and, and, uh, rewrite them or whatever. There's this tool called rake gem, which will just generate a zero dependency, uh, skeleton, extremely minimal gem skeleton. Mm hmm. Hey, what about Ruby Gems plugins that are useful for gem development? Gem yeah. open. Yeah, that's my favorite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so if people don't know, there's, uh, you know, Ruby Gems has a plugin system and you can write, uh, essentially new commands for Ruby Gems as plugins. And yeah, gem open is awesome. It just looks so, like. So, okay. Sell me on gem open because like I never use it, but it opens your gem. <laughs> well, but, it opens well, other people's okay. gems, really. Well, okay. Gem has a built-in command that's called what? I'm looking for it right now. That I'm just using it just spits the gem out into a directory for me. A gem environment gemder? No, it's no, it's way easier than that. It's um, gem help commands. There it is. And you can see I obviously don't do this often enough to have it memorized. But um, Are you talking about un- unpacking it. Uh, yeah, is that it? Yeah, it? unpacks the installed gem into the current directory, so you can uh, let's type. See, I want to see the like where it's installed. I want to see the the code where it's installed. Yeah, as it got in installed. my system. I, the only thing I don't like about that, and, and the reason I avoided it, is I see tons of people that gem open and start editing to their heart's content. <laughs> so they throw print statements in there. They they do whatever. They change the code around, and it's like. You know, to me, that installed gem is sacrosanct, and I will not go there. <laughs> okay, um, so I will admit, one of the reasons I like gem open, now I almost never use gem open for this purpose. Normally, I just want to see the code, and I don't want to wait for it to unpack. But every now and then, when all of my resorts have run out, as a last resort to figure out what the heck is going on and when I'm completely stumped, I will sometimes do a gem open and actually start putting print statements in the installed gem in my system because I'm baffled as to why something is either happening or more often why it isn't happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so I'm, I'm the opposite. I consider that no man's land and I am not allowed to go there. 
So what I will do is I will gem unpack the gem name, which spits it out into a directory. I'll read the code, and then I'll go load a monkey patch in my code that modifies the gem uh, to print what I wanted to print out. Yeah, see, so I'm too lazy for that. Like, yeah, I've, I've, had, I've, I've, run, I've run into too many situations where I spent, I wound up spending an inordinate amount of time getting the monkey patch wrong before oh. eventually getting the monkey patch right. Or I discovered that, you know, I was having to monkey patch more and more because I'm just like going through trying to figure out like what is the path that this code is taking or something. Yeah. And so I, I have, I would have to progressively monkey patch more and more. And it's just, it's just so much faster to go and edit and, that and, and then, you know, give myself like a ritual 20 lashes afterwards. Yeah. I actually found a place where it couldn't be monkey patched in Ruby 1.9 mini test was a gem. And Ryan down at the very bottom of the file defines mini test with a capital M and a lowercase t to equal mini test with a capital M capital T. And the comment is because I, I mistyped this all the time. And we had something that was including that file twice and we couldn't get that turned off. So we were getting duplicate conf constant definitions all the time. Mm, yeah. And the only way to fix it was to remove Ryan Davis's, uh, predilection for typos uh, from the mini test gem. Anyways, we did a good job of covering both sides of that debate. <laughs> yep. 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 I, I think we just let it sit there. I, I think I agree with James. It's sacrosanct. And sometimes that's the best hamburger to make your cows out of or vice versa. <laughs> what? Can <laughs> <laughs> we please do the picks? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Let's do the picks. Josh, what are your picks? Oh, you made me, you made me go first twice this week. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I have a theme for my picks this week. Uh, my first pick is, is a cookbook. It's The Joy of Cooking. And, uh, this is, uh, like one of the standard cookbooks. And like, okay, how many people on the show right now have The Joy of Cooking in their kitchen? Anybody? I think I do. I think I do. I don't, yes, I don't think I do, way. but I, I remember my That's the actual Julia Child's book, up. right? No. No? No. No, nope. my wife keeps it. Yeah, it, so the joy of cooking is just like if you need one cookbook in your kitchen, that's the book to have. That, in in my opinion, I, you know, it, it, I don't know. There's this this other guy came out with how to cook anything or how to cook everything. That might be a good replacement for it, but I've never seen it. So, I, but I love Bittman's book is quite good. I'll I'll pipe up for that. Yeah, I, yeah, I I may have to buy that and check it out soon. But um, but joy of cooking is great because not only does it give you recipes every. Every section, like, you know, there's a section on meat and poultry, there's a section on baking, there's a section on, you know, sauces. Every section has, like, a lot of front material. It's sort of like a Martin Fowler book. There's, like, a, you know, a discussion at the front that talks about things in a general way, and then, and then there's, you know, the rest of the chapter is a bunch of recipes. And I love that. And it like talks to you, talks to you about like what are safe temperatures to cook meat to and how do you want to handle stuff and how do you debone a turkey and just, you know, it's, it's really great. It, and it's like, I don't know, 8,000 pages long or something. So I, it's, <laughs> it's great. I, I can find almost anything in there. So, so that's cookbook number one this week. And then cookbook number two is gather. And I've talked before about uh, how my, my niece and her, her fiance uh, published uh, Make It Paleo. Uh, a, I guess that was a year or so ago, and and that's been really successful. And it's a it you know it's been very well received. And they have this new paleo cookbook called Gather, uh, which is about uh, 
paleo cooking for entertaining people. So if you're going to have a dinner party or a brunch or something, uh, that's that's often a really challenging thing for paleo. And so they have a bunch of really great, uh, not just recipes, but here's your here's your whole plan for your whole uh, dinner party. You know, here's all the different dishes you can cook, and that's uh, that's getting released. Like, well, it'll it may be out by the time people hear this podcast. And so I'm, I'm I've seen a copy of it, and it's just great. And so those are my cookbooks this week. Go uh, go eat healthy. Cool, awesome. Uh, Avdi, what are your picks? Oh well, first of all, um, I, I believe Make It Paleo is one of the uh, paleo cookbooks we have like we have around. Um, both my wife and my daughter like to to cook that way. And uh, it, as far as I know, the, the it's the one with the hmm? full page photo on on every yeah recipe. yeah yeah yeah. Uh, uh, and um, I think they've been getting some really good stuff out of there. So there there's some some unbiased uh, props for that book. Um, it's been it's good stuff. Have you, have you done the like chicken with forty cloves of garlic yet? Uh, I think they might have done that. I can't remember. Yeah, that's that one. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds like something that. they would that's they would do piece. because they're both garlic fiends. <laughs> um, nice. So if they haven't, I'm sure they will. But uh, let's see, picks. There is a great article, uh, actually a series of two articles that I ran across the other day, and they're actually not very new articles. And I have proceeded to lose them in my browser tabs. But basically, it's a there's it's a series of two articles on the rise of the expert beginner, and it's it's about people in Ooh. the software industry who achieve a certain level of proficiency uh, on the Dreyfus scale of learning things, and then because of the environment they're in, assume that they have become experts, and then start asserting what they, you know, their sort of beginner level knowledge as expertise to the rest of their their team. And and it goes on to talk about how this tends to cause teams to rot out because you know the, the option is basically either keep support, you know, this you have you have people that that rise, you know, rise up, you know, as as time goes on, you know, to, you know, junior to senior to whatever, you know, ranks people have in their software and engineering organizations and and it may just be because of longevity, basically, and or job hopping, hopping a lot. And, you know, the, the, the options in teams is either to support them in the stuff that they're saying, whether it's a good idea or not, or to sort of butt heads and then wind up moving on. And so you wind up with all the people that might have, have, um, good opposing opinions eventually just moving on and, and winding up with these, these teams that, you know, where the only opinion is the, the ex, the expert beginner's opinion. And I see that a lot. I mean, I see a lot of siloing in the industry. So I, I found it a really, really insightful article or a series of articles and, and absolutely worth reading for anybody who's in this business. Okay. James, what are your picks? I have two for a technical pick, the new peep code play-by-play by Ben Orstein is fan-freaking-fabulous. It's really good. Uh, I've mentioned a bunch of the play-by-plays before. If you... Uh, have liked them even a little, you're gonna love this one. Uh, it's the, it, it's probably the best of the series. It's a live refactoring. There was a play by play just before this one of Corey Haynes and Aaron Patterson pair programming, uh, to solve this problem. And that one was pretty good too. But, um, in this one, Jeffrey gave the code that Aaron and Corey produced. 
to Ben and said, okay, refactor. So it's great because it has him looking through a code base he's not familiar with and trying to understand it. Uh, it has him refactoring that code base and, you know, trying to figure out what's going on, making changes to it to improve his understanding of it and stuff like that. And then what really makes it great is Ben is one of those cool people that really has his environment a certain way. And he walks you through the logic of that as he goes and how he decides to make changes to that and stuff. Anyways, totally cool. Great play-by-play. -play. Definitely watch that. And then for my non-technical pick, um, I too have been into food lately. My wife and I are trying to eat healthier and we've taken to making a menu each week and stuff like that and keeping track of what we're eating. And uh, as part of that process, I try to add a new uh, recipe to the menu every week. So, you know, we can try out new things and uh, it doesn't get boring and stuff like that. So I'm always on the lookout for new food sources. And the one I've just been absolutely loving lately is a blog called Budget Bites. And the purpose of the blog, it's, it's just some uh, lady that likes cooking and keeping track of the cost of it and stuff. So each recipe has like a a price on it and how much it costs, uh, which is really cool and not really what I care about, like as far as the price stuff. So if you heard that and you were like, eh, big deal, you should still go look at it anyway. Because like I said, my wife and I have been trying to eat healthier. And so I run all of these recipes through our particular point system. Uh, and most of them are, are fairly good uh, as far as like health goes. Um, they have some uh, vegetarian stuff, I know, and then and then stuff that's not, but just lots of great recipes. I mean, tons of great ones. We've tried about, uh, I don't know, 10 now, maybe, uh, and a large number of those have entered our We Want to Eat This All the Time list. Uh, so cool blog for food recipes that are budget conscious and fairly healthy. So those are my picks. Awesome. Avdi, what are your other picks? Okay, so you know how if you want to buy shoes online, Zappos is like the the place to go. And I don't know if you know, uh, if you've ever been to like a Nordstrom store, how they have like the main Nordstrom st store where everything's super fancy and super expensive. But then they have Nordstrom Rack on like the bottom level down in the basement where you can find all sorts of stuff that's that's steeply discounted. So 6pm.com is the rack, is the, the Nordstrom Rack of uh, of Zappos. And you can go there and buy shoes for a lot less than, than they, you know, list on sites like Zappos and Amazon. And, uh, I've gotten a few pairs of shoes off of there and been really happy with it. Awesome. David, what are your picks? Uh, okay. So, uh, just two today. The first one is how to survive a ground up rewrite without losing your sanity, aka screw you, Joel Spolsky. We're rewriting it from scratch. Uh, it's a guest post by Dan Milstein on uh, the On Startups blog. And I just love this blog post because it, he's got some non-worksafe language there but in, in, in the post. But he says, prepare yourself for this project for, to never freaking end. And the reason why is that migrating the data sucks beyond all belief. And I've worked on projects where you've had to migrate data and you end up having somebody come to you and say, we need a whole new schema. We need to migrate the data, but we need to keep the beta site and the old site live and running and accepting data at the same time. That sounds and really familiar to me. Dave. Doesn't it though? Doesn't that sound like <laughs> a project that you and I worked on? And uh, it's, it, it really does 
yeah, he he's got a really good finger on uh, uh, just the pains that are involved when you rewrite a project from the from the ground up. The post title is because Joel Spolsky basically said never ever do a total ground up rewrite, and Dan gives the the conditions under which that absolute statement is uh, no longer true. And all of the trade-offs that you're going to have to confront if you decide to go down the road of of doing a ground-up rewrite. So that's my first pick. The second pick, uh, I should have picked this last week or the week before uh, just for timeliness, but I am speaking at Open West, um, which if you are listening to this podcast on May 1st, which is the day that we publish uh, this episode, then I am speaking tomorrow at uh, two o'clock in Salt Lake City. And it's an 11 track conference for 80 bucks for three days. Um, I just, I, I cannot believe, uh, you know, Mountain West has one track, but this one goes to 11. And uh, I cannot believe that they're putting on a three day, 11 track conference for like 80 bucks. So uh, go to Open West uh, if you can. If you can get, if there's time to get a ticket, absolutely. If you live on the Wasatch Front or in driving distance, it's a fantastic conference and you should go. So those are my picks. Awesome. All right. So uh, I just have one pick today and that is zip ties. I got a whole package of them there. How many are in here? 200 zip ties in this canister of different sizes and shapes. And it's, it's just a super handy way of uh, securing things, organizing cables, things like that. So. I really like them. I'll put a link to the the package that I ordered off of Amazon, and uh, and we'll have that in the show notes. Next week, we're going to be talking about the Rails View. We haven't really been plugging our uh, book club book, but that's, that's what we're hitting next week. And uh, so go read the book, and we'll catch you all next week.